I invite you to make your way to Romans chapter 8. Our text today is verse 12 through 17 in a message entitled, Led by the Spirit, as we continue on in our series, The Spirit-Filled Life. We'll read the scripture here in just a moment as you make your way there. In our emphasis on the Spirit-Filled Life, we've noted how the Spirit-Filled Life comes to us in power because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and what took place on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. God is the eternal triune God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without any division of nature, essence, or being. God is one in essence and three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are co-equal and co-eternal. We first considered what it means to be baptized by the Spirit. When we trust in Jesus and we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, it is a spiritual baptism in which we are brought from death to life. We are sealed for the day of redemption and we are indwelled within. We then considered what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are led by him in the sense that we are yielding ourselves to him and surrendering ourselves to him and continuing to be filled on an ongoing basis. And as a result of that, we will exercise our spiritual gifts. We will demonstrate the fruit of the spirit in our lives. There will be a practical likeness of Jesus in us, and we will have a desire to share Jesus with others. Today, our attention is on what it means to be led by the Spirit. And to be led by the Holy Spirit, I think, is essential for every Christian. If we want to not just go through the motions and just go through what we know is the right thing to do, but actually experience life with God, we need to understand this concept and the reality of uh, being led by the Spirit. So we pick up reading here in Romans chapter 8. And I want to read verses 12 and 13 as we begin. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul begins here by making a contrast between two ways of living and two ultimate outcomes. If you live according to the flesh, it will end in death. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? It means to live in a way that you're pursuing your own self-interest at the expense of others, and you're basically ignoring the presence of God in your life. The word flesh or the idea of the flesh is a metaphor for the human tendency to seek and to possess what brings immediate satisfaction to self without any real regard for the spiritual. Paul again uses a metaphor in death because it does not mean immediate physical death, but rather spiritual death. By contrast, if you live by the power of the Spirit, it will lead to life. And the idea of life is not just a metaphor for life, 
It's the reality of the life that God intends for us, led by the Spirit in a life of significance. Galatians 5 and verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Now verse 14, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Believers in Jesus Christ, therefore, are in an intimate, familial relationship with God because we have received the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. Verse 15 in Romans 8. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And then verse 17, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In these few moments that we have together, I want to share with you three truths about what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. And the first truth is this. When we are led by the Spirit, it is because we have been adopted into the family of God. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. Now, you might have read somewhere along the way uh, some of the statistics as it relates to orphans in the world. And the current international statistic is that there are somewhere around 153 million children in the world today who are orphans. An orphan, by technical definition, is defined as a child who is under the age of 18 who has lost his or her parents. The definition is further expanded to classify the difference between single orphans and double orphans, meaning that a single orphan is a child who has lost one parent to death, a double orphan is a child who has lost both parents to death, And then we can expand beyond that because of the social problems that exist in the world. Uh, There are social orphans. Sometimes parents leave their children and they're seeking work and they're trying to survive. Other times it's the desperate situations like what we experience in our own state because of the substance abuse crisis. And many children are in very difficult circumstances, not with their parents of birth. Now, as we know, uh, the status of an orphan puts them in a position where they are oftentimes hungry and destitute. They lack basic needs like food and shelter and clothing and medical care and education. They all have a common need uh, to be loved and to to be cared for. And on their own, they have no way of escaping uh, their situation. They're not able to rise above their circumstances. And what adoption does is adoption provides hope for children without parents. Every day across America, uh, the scene unfolds in courtrooms where a judge speaks a few words and strikes the gavel on the desk and a child receives a new family. Perhaps it's been a long process, but in that moment, something has happened that is legal and is substantial. It's bittersweet in a sense because it's only needed because of the difficult circumstances the child finds themselves in. But it's also wonderful because the child comes to completely belong to parents who want them, 
and are able to love and to care for them may be better than the circumstance that they came from. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion includes visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. So we know that the heart of God is to care for those who are without a family in a physical sense, but even more so the heart of God is for those of us who have no family in a spiritual sense. And it can be a great blessing for children and loving families who bring them into their family, truly a gift from God, an orphan brought into a family by means of adoption out of a choice of love. We find the theme of both physical adoption and spiritual adoption fairly prominent in the scripture. Let me give you an example. The book of Exodus tells the story of a Hebrew woman named Jochebed who bore a son during a time when the Pharaoh had ordered all Hebrew male infants to be put to death. Jochebed took a basket and waterproofed it and placed the baby in the river in the basket among the reeds and eventually one of Pharaoh's daughters spots the baby in the basket and retrieves the child. She eventually adopts him into the royal family and gives him the name Moses. And of course Moses was going to be a significant favored servant of God who had a distinct role in God's plan for the ages. So I say to you in that regard that God has a distinct and a direct purpose for adoption. He has that distinct and direct purpose for adoption physically and especially spiritually. Now, while there are tens of millions of physical orphans in the world, there are far more people spiritually who lack a family. And maybe that's your situation today. You can't say that you have a spiritual family because you've not yet come to follow Jesus Christ. You've not repented and believed in him. And on your own, you have no way of escaping the fate that awaits you. On your own, you cannot rise above the circumstances that you find yourself in spiritually. But when you come to faith in Jesus and you believe in him and you trust in him alone, God says you become a part of a family. And what's in view here is the doctrine of adoption spiritually, which means basically the admission of a believer into the family of God. Or to state it more directly, spiritual adoption takes place when justified sinners become beloved children of God. I like the way Robert Webb Uh, put it when he wrote, he said, when we approach God in the intensity of worship, we gather up all the sweetness that is involved in fatherhood and all the tenderness that is wrapped up in sonship. And when calamities overcome us and uh, troubles come in like a flood, we lift up our cry and we stretch out our arms to God as a compassionate father. We are given a tremendous blessing and that blessing is is a privilege that is illustrated by our adoption into God's family. So adoption is anchored in God's eternal plan. It is secured by the certainty of his faithfulness. And then it is blessed by his boundless love. And adoption, if it is anything, it is a change in status. And here's the change in status. It is a change from having no spiritual family to having 
an eternal spiritual family. It is a change from darkness to life. It is a change from hopelessness to hope. And Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his will. The Bible uses different names to describe God. And when you see a name that describes God in the scripture, that's telling you something about the character of God. And Abba in this passage here in Romans chapter 8 is an Aramaic term that means father. It's a term that denotes affection and confidence and trust. So when Abba was uttered in those days, it signified a close, intimate relationship between a father and his child. Now there's something interesting here because on each of the occasions that Abba is used in the scripture, the word father immediately follows. For example, Jesus addressed his father as Abba father in his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6 indicates that the spirit in our hearts cries out, Abba father. And then here we have this reference to Abba father emphasizing the fatherhood of God and God's care for his children is highlighted. Now you've probably heard the statement just generally in culture, uh, we are all God's children. Now in part, that's true because we've all been created by God and we are under his authority. We are subject to his judgment. But the right to be called a child of God and to call him Abba Father is something that only those who have been adopted into the family of God by the love of God have the privilege of doing. So when we say Abba Father, it's almost a, a, a double statement of Father, Father, but it's even closer than that, speaking to the familial relationship. In that, the holy, eternal, all-powerful, all-loving, ever-present God brings you into his family. And he says, you have the privilege of calling him your father. So when we are led by the Spirit, it is because we've been adopted into the family of God. Second truth is this. When we are led by the Spirit, we have confidence that we are a part of the family of God. When we are led by the Spirit, we have confidence that we are a part of the family of God. Look again in Romans chapter 8, and it says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies together with our children means to bear witness to. This verse speaks to the doctrine of assurance. Now, don't miss the connection here. The doctrine of adoption is closely linked with the doctrine of assurance. Now think about how sometimes children on this side of life respond to the process of adoption. Sometimes adopted children, because they've come from unstable, difficult backgrounds, they, at least at first, if they're old enough to process this sort of thing, may question their place in their new family and in their new home. And they wonder whether or not it's secure and whether or not they're going to be able to stay because many times they've been in uncertain, unstable situations. But when we come to a spiritual application of this, when it comes to 
our being adopted by God into his family, there should be absolutely no doubt or uncertainty. There's no doubt or uncertainty for the child in a physical adoption because they've been brought in by a loving family who has taken a deliberate step to bring them in. But even more so, there should be no doubt or uncertainty on our part because we've been brought in by a heavenly father who has brought us to keep us and to see us safely home. So think about it this way. The spirit brings us into union with Christ through salvation. And then the spirit in union with Christ keeps us by preservation. He holds on to us to complete the good work that he has started. Through the internal witness of the Spirit in our lives, we begin to understand what it means to trust in the sufficiency of Christ and his power to save and to sanctify and to glorify. So the Spirit testifies to our spirit and convinces us to recognize the Lordship of Christ in our lives. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So when you bear witness of your salvation to someone who is not saved or in a testimony to those who are, and you're able to say, there was a time that I was lost, but now I'm saved. There was a time that I was blind, but now I can see. There was a time that I was without hope, but now I have hope. And all of this is true because Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you're able to say that, it's because you are led by the Spirit of God and that confidence is coming from Him. Now, I don't think that the internal witness of the Spirit works independently or apart from our ability to think or observe or reflect or to draw conclusions about our lives. I think it works hand in hand. Uh, We find this tension, for example, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says this in verse 13. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So you see the tension there? He says, listen, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You you need to take hold of what God has done for you. Oh, but it's God who's working in you. It's God who's bringing it about. It's, It's God who is securing the promise. And the connection here in Romans chapter 8 is the flow of thought in that we are led by the Spirit when we mortify sin or we seek to to kill it in our lives. We look to God as our Father And then we move forward in obedience to the word and to his son. Now I want to read two verses to you from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. And listen to what the scripture says. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 4. By these he has given us a very great and precious promise so that through these promises you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Now, I want to make a point about this. Uh, Tom Nettles, who is a faithful uh, Southern Baptist professor who has written extensively on 
inerrancy and the position of the Bible in our lives and its authority as well as its sufficiency, wrote this. He said, these evidences of Romans 8 combined with the spiritual bestowal of great and precious promises in 2 Peter chapter 1 place inner assurance and external evidence in what he refers to as a Chalcedonian relationship. Now, here's why that matters. The Council of Chalcedon was held in 451 AD, and it was a church council that was uh, basically addressing uh, the issue of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ and the relationship thereof. And he speaks here of the inner assurance and the external evidence having the same Chalcedonian relationship. And then he says this. He says, they cohere inconfusedly, unchangeably, inseparably, and indivisibly. We have inner assurance because the Spirit is bearing witness to us. He's given a testimony that we belong to Christ. But then we also have external evidence because we're working out our own salvation in fear and in trembling. And true assurance keeps us both holy and humble because we realize that it's all of what God has done, but then we're living in light of how he has changed our lives. Now, from time to time, uh, I make reference to uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's uh, allegory of the journey to the celestial city, a journey from this life to the next to be in the presence of God eternally. And in part, uh, he describes in that Mr. Little Faith. He uses all these designations of different people who are struggling with different things. But he says, Mr. Little Faith was assaulted by three thieves. Listen to the thieves. Faint heart, mistrust, and guilt. And because of this, made the entire journey to the celestial city with no spending money. And although they could not rob him of his jewels, he was never able to derive proper advantage from them so that he might finish his course with joy. Not only do Miss Much Afraid and Mr. Little Faith walk haltingly and insecurely, but Christian himself at the moment of death feared that he would not feel the bottom of the river and would perish before he reached the other side. Did you know there are a lot of people who are saved by grace through faith? The Spirit of God is indwelling them. They've been baptized and sealed and they're certain for heaven, the assurance is theirs to be had, but they live without the assurance, and it robs them of their joy on the Christian journey toward that heavenly city, toward that celestial city with God. I'm here to tell you today, it does not have to be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way because just as your salvation was not dependent on what you could do, your assurance isn't either, It is by God's grace. And if you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, here's what you need to do. You need to look to God, who is your father, who has adopted you. That's what you need to do. A lot of times we like that assurance because we're not looking to God, who is our father, who has adopted us. We're looking at ourselves. And we lose sight of what it is to be in Christ. And if you lack any or all assurance and you have repented and believed in Christ, there's a disconnect there. But let me give also a word of warning here. If you lack any or all assurance and you have not repented and believed in Christ, 
You need to remember that it's the Holy Spirit of God who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he may very well be convicting you, even in this moment, of your need for Christ. And he may, in this moment, as he convicts you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and the fact that you know you've not repented and believed in Christ, as he's convicting you, he's also inviting you. And as he convicts you of your sin, he's inviting you to the place of forgiveness. And as he invites you to the place of forgiveness, he's inviting you into the family of God. And if you don't have a spiritual family, the Spirit of God is saying to you, through faith in Christ, you can have a spiritual family. You can be adopted. And not only can you be adopted, you can have assurance and confidence as to whether or not you're a child of God. Have you forsaken all? To trust in Christ? Is Jesus alone your hope? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God is not a liar. When we are led by the Spirit, we have confidence that we are part of the family of God. Then there's the third and final truth. When we are led by the Spirit, we have the promise of being heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. He says here in Romans 8, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You know what that means? Because we are in Christ, we are blessed to relate to God as Father just as Jesus does. Being a child of God means you have a relationship And you have an inheritance. The word heirs refers to those who receive their allotted possession by right of sonship. John puts it this way in John chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13. He said, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So you have full rights to receive the inheritance in Christ because you are a beneficiary of God. And Colossians 1 and verse 12 indicates that we are to give thanks to the Father who has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Now this is important. And it goes back once again to our adopted status. I really like the way William Barclay puts it in his commentary on the letter to the Romans. He explains in that uh, the consequences of adoption in Roman society, and he makes the point that Paul had borrowed that concept uh, for his writing, but it was from a spiritual perspective. And here's how it goes, at least in part. The adopted person lost all rights in their old family in those days, and they gained rights of a legitimate child in their new family. And it meant that in the purest of ways, they got a new father. Now what followed with that adoption process is that they also became heirs of the father's estate. So it didn't matter if other sons were born afterwards or it didn't affect uh, their rights. Uh, They were inalienably co-heirs with uh, their other siblings because of their adoption into the family. And in law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. So, for instance, 
if it was like an indentured ser- servitude type circumstance and they came into that situation with debts, the debts were canceled. The slate was clean. They had a new start and they had a new father and they had a new direction. So in the eyes of the law, that person was absolutely the child of the new father. Spiritually speaking, what do we come to this family of God with? Before we come to the family of God, we've got a debt of sin that we can't do anything about. We can't wipe it out. We can't get rid of it. We we can't get right with God on our own. But what happens is through faith in Christ, our sin debt is paid because of the blood of Christ on the cross. We are brought into this family, and now we've got this inheritance. And we have these wonderful blessings that are certain because we are children of God. But the access point to that is our relationship with God in Christ. Did you know that there is somewhere around a total value of unclaimed property in the United States, somewhere around $50 billion? Uh, You see these commercials talking about unclaimed property, and maybe you see uh, print or media advertisements occasionally telling you that you need to check your name and figure out if you've got unclaimed property, something valuable somewhere. And uh, it's in bank accounts and investments and refund checks and deposits and customer overpayments and insurance payments and physical property and on and on the list goes. So several years back, I got a contact from a friend of mine who said, your name is on this unclaimed property list in another state. And the value, I I forget exactly, but it was somewhere like $187 or something. It was a little bit less than $200, but it was enough that I was going to take a little bit of trouble to see if I could get it. So I made an inquiry, and it had originated from an overpayment on an insurance premium. And I inquired about it and tried to retrieve it, but here was the problem. I lacked the proper paperwork to authenticate that it belonged to me, and I could never access it. I finally just had to, had to forget about it. Well, from a spiritual perspective, we need the right paperwork, so to speak. We need spiritual access to God and the spiritual access to God is through faith in Jesus Christ it's through the hope of the gospel it's through what he's done on our behalf and if we don't have that we're not going to access it and that means that there is going to be unclaimed spiritual property that God has invited us into to experience it and we weren't able to claim it because we were not in Christ but if we're in Christ we can claim all of it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is kept in heaven for us. If your faith is in Jesus, he is the one who has secured the inheritance for you, and the Spirit is the one who makes good on the promise. When we are led by the Spirit, we have the promise of being heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, I'm going to give you this closing statement, and I'm going to come toward a conclusion of the message. You'll note here in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. If you are led by the Spirit, it means you are walking with God. Your spiritual walk is life with God. If you want to walk out of here today and say, well, what was he talking about? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means life with God, surrendered 
to his will and experiencing fellowship with him. That's what it is. And it encompasses every part of your life. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that your life is divided into these secular and sacred boxes. And God is a part of one and he's not a part of the other. Listen, God cares about the vocation that he called you to and that he gifted you to be able to be a part of. And he wants you to live for his glory in that vocation. God cares about your family. And he wants you to live for his glory and to care for your family in a way that honors him. God cares about how you live life in the world and whether or not you're led by the Spirit as you interact with other people, whether or not you're exercising your spiritual gifts and bearing spiritual fruit and living life for God. He cares about all of that. So there's no corner of your life that God, your Father, does not care about. Just as there's no area of your life that you don't care about your earthly children. You you think about them being healthy from a holistic perspective. You want every area of their life to be healthy. That would be your ultimate goal. And when God looks at us spiritually, it's the same way. If you are led by the Spirit, it means that you will be pursuing holiness. And it means that you can trust the Spirit of God to guide you in thought and word and in deed. And you say, well, I want to know the will of God for my life. The way to know the will of God for your life is to be led by the Spirit. And how you are led by the Spirit listen carefully, will always be consistent with the Word. Does it not connect that if the Spirit of God inspired the Word, everything He's going to direct you in your life is going to be consistent with that? Sometimes people say, I know the Bible says this, but. Okay, that's always a false statement. If you say, I know the Bible says this, but, and you want to do whatever you want to do as a result of it, that's always a false statement that's going to lead you down a path that is not going to be healthy or holy for you. You can trust the Spirit to lead you consistently with the Word. But now here's the point. God never said it would be easy living in a sin-fallen world. He never did. But He promises to be with us the whole way. I love the way Gerald Bray put it, and I'm going to close with this, and we're going to pray. He says, the glorification of the Christian is that we shall share in God's glory when we are in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, experiencing deeper fellowship with God and not being at risk of falling away into sin, and it will be God's glory finally, all in all. That's what we desire. God's glory, finally, all in all. Spire heads together for a moment as we come toward the close of the service. Today is your life in a place where you're being led by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, it ought to be. And there are any number of things that get us off track, distract us, confuse us. And maybe today it's God's will for your life that you get back on that track of being led by the Spirit. As a child of God, that's where he wants you to be. That's that's where the the blessing in life is, and that's what we're going to experience for all of eternity.
But maybe today you would know and be able to say for certainty that you are not a child of God. You've not been adopted into his family. You don't have confidence because you don't know him. And God is inviting you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, your status could change from not having a spiritual family to having a spiritual family. And most importantly, having God as your Father through Jesus, your Savior. Father, thank you today that we can be a part of your family and call you Abba, Father. A term of intimacy, a term of familial relationship that we are not without a family. But you are our Heavenly Father and we are your children. I pray that we would live in light of that that we'd be a people who are led by the Spirit in our lives, not just going through the motions. God, God, help us not to just go through the motions. Help, help us not just to live a, a consumer Christianity or a faith of convenience where we're, we're partially serving you, we're partially loving you, we're partially living for you when it works for us. But help us to be wholly surrendered and to be led by your Spirit. I pray if there are any here or might hear this message later on who have not yet trusted in Christ, that they would see the beauty of the gospel, the certainty of salvation, the hope of eternity, the home in heaven, and come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Thank you, God, that there was a time that that happened for those of us who are Christians, that we were brought into your family. And we just say collectively, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. And I pray that you would lift the burdens from us and we would live in light of the power that you've given us in every area of life that you care about us. And we're so grateful. So we give this time of closing response over to you, Father, and we ask that you would work in it. If there are spiritual decisions or steps that need to be taken. I pray that people would respond as your spirit leads. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.